The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. We'll open your Bibles now again to Romans chapter 5. Romans, the fifth chapter. And Lord willing, and I say that with some trepidation, we're going to finish this chapter today, seven verses. I'll tell you a little bit about, more about that in a moment. Romans chapter 5. Let me set the context in our mind with verses, by reading verses 15 through 21. Paul writes, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the many, of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the one, uh, on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, or one man, Adam, death reigned, reigned through the one, much more... Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In December of 2013, Time Magazine put out a list of the people they believe to be the most influential people in the history of the world. Pretty impressive to take that on. There are some obvious inclusions on that list, but there are some surprises. And there's a glaring omission on that list. Now, before we talk about that omission, I want to consider the inclusions. Here are the list of the top 10 most influential people in history, according to Time Magazine. Number 10. I know you have some people in mind. See if they made it on this list. Number 10, Thomas Jefferson. Number 9, Alexander the Great. Number 8, Aristotle. Number 7, Adolf Hitler. Number 6, George Washington. Number 5, Abraham Lincoln. Number 4, William Shakespeare. That was a surprise to me. Number 3, Muhammad. Number two, Napoleon. And number one, Time Magazine said was Jesus. I'm glad Jesus is at number one. I'm glad he's on the list. I'm glad Time Magazine recognizes that. It will be almost impossible to ignore him. But there's someone missing on that list that is a glaring omission. There are obvious reasons that he's missing, some secular and some religious. The missing person on that list, you've probably picked up from the reading of the text and from our scripture, is Adam. 
the historical man named Adam. I think the main reason he is missing on that list is because most historians would laugh at his possible existence. We understand that. They don't take any of the Bible seriously, much less the the fantastical nature, as they would call it, of the first three chapters. That's to be expected. But we've entered a sad day when many in the church who are professing believers deny that Adam was actually a living, breathing, actual human being. Countless Christian doctrines, though, stand or fall based on the historical nature and significance and real presence of Adam. Here's the simplest of all questions. If we disbelieve the first two chapters of the Bible as historical, real fact, then at what chapter do we begin believing it? Three, four, six, at the flood there, 12, Abraham, Joseph, do you start in Exodus because there was a movie made of it? Where do you start believing that the Bible is true? The factual history of Adam actually informs us of so many doctrines that we would be utterly devoid of without the literal history of the man, Adam. For example, where did sin come from? No Adam, no explanation. Gender roles and distinctives. Why is there a man and a woman? Adam and Eve tell us that. The origin and purpose and grounds for marriage. Why do people get married? What's the purpose of getting married? The presence of evil in the world is traced back to the understanding of a historical Adam. The origin of sex and sexual identity is between Adam and Eve defined. Why there must be a substitutionary atonement is defined in Adam's life. There's a link between the historical biblical facts and theological truth of Adam and the rest of the playing out of the Old Testament into the New. In fact, there's an unbroken series of chained links between Adam and Noah, Adam and Abraham, Adam and Isaac and Jacob, Adam and Joseph, Adam and Moses. If you take Adam out of that chain link, the whole thing breaks. The doctrine of sin and salvation coalesce in the historicity of Adam. It's also important to note that the genealogies of 1 Chronicles and Luke 3 reference Adam as a real man along with other real people. So you take Adam away and now Luke is a liar. The Apostle Paul certainly believed in the historical Adam. He treated Adam as such here in Romans 5. He also does in 1 Corinthians 15 as well as the historical Eve in 2 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2. You can say it this way, Paul's theology is undeniably connected to the reality of a real man created by God in a moment from the earth named Adam. Take away the reality of Adam and you lose biblical authority. You take away the historical being of Adam and you take away the doctrine of imputation and you take away the doctrine of grace. Erase Adam as a real figure and you have no prototype for the gospel and forgiveness and salvation. Bottom line, 
If you take away the reality and historicity of Adam, you lose the reason for the gospel. There's no, no Adam. If there's no Adam, then the gospel falls apart at the seams. That lands us here in the final paragraph of Romans chapter 5. Paul bases his understanding of Christ on the historicity of his understanding of Adam. In fact, he says there's a first and a second Adam. If Paul was wrong about Adam, why would we accept Paul being right about anything else he said about the truth of God and the gospel? Paul has been building the case for five chapters that everyone is sinful and everyone is in need of salvation. He's proven it through the law. He's proven it through the, the testimony of Abraham. He's proven it through the testimony of conscience and experience. And now he proves it by the reality of Adam and tells us this is where sin came from. So when your son or daughter asks you, I don't like doing what's bad. Why in the world do I do what's bad? You can say it's because of your nature, and your nature goes back upstream all the way to our first parents, Adam and Eve. We studied that over the last few weeks. Paul frames his discussion now in terms of imputation, again, of righteousness. This is review. Remember, imputation is that act by which God declares us righteous. Not infusing us with righteousness. It's a different doctrine. He declares us righteous. And that declaration is him imputing. It's an accounting term. Him taking righteousness and putting it on our ledger. Taking our sin and putting it on the ledger of Christ at the cross. That's the doctrine of imputation. We spent four chapters studying that. Now he climaxes that with the discussion of Adam and Christ as he compares these two most important influential people in history. In fact, the two most important sources in history. Why sources? The source of sin is traced back to Adam. And we can't blame Adam because had we been there, we would have been, done the same thing and more. And we have chosen to sin at every point. And he also says the source of salvation is Christ. And he says just basically, if you summarize all that paragraph, just as sin came from one person and can be traced back to one person, salvation is traced back to one person and one act. The act on the cross, the act of disobedience in the garden. He compares, we say compare, really it's a contrast more than a comparison. He contrasts Adam and Jesus, the first Adam and the second Adam, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of those saved, throughout this last paragraph. And he, he contrasts the irreparable damage that Adam's disobedience did to the fall of man and the sinfulness of the human race, and the matchless gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers. Now, let me tell you, we have been moving pretty slowly through the book of Romans, and that's intentional. I think that there, there's so much here that's it's so dense that it's, you can almost stop at every word and do a series, much less a sermon. And I struggled a lot with this last paragraph because I had it broken down into three or four different um, sermons. And the more I studied it, it's really one message. And to break it down in, into constituent parts is really to lose the whole. We'll end up studying trees and not see a great forest. So it's important at this point that we take a deep breath and we have to cover this all 
Lord willing, we have to cover this all in one shot. So I am going to hit hyperdrive, and hopefully we'll get the one message out of this. I'm not made any promises yet, but let's see how far we can get. The main issue is to show the damning influence of Adam and his sin against the salvation offer of Christ and his work. When you read this, it seems complicated. It's really not. It's saying, look at Adam, what he did, and the consequences. Look at Jesus, what he did, and the consequences. That's the simple message in this last paragraph. We can organize our thoughts around five ways that Jesus' work is better than Adam's. That's what Paul's telling us. Here's how Jesus' work is better than Adam's. Jesus' work on the cross, Adam's disobedience in the garden. Five ways Jesus' work or act is better than Adam's. The first is in verse 15. Jesus provides a better contribution, namely grace. Jesus provides a better contribution than Adam did, namely grace. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. There's the example. There's the analogy. There's the contrast. There's the comparison. The free gift is salvation, as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, as we'll see in chapter 6. Salvation is called a gift. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you earn. A gift is free. The free gift, the costless gift of Christ is not like the transgression. He's not talking about just sin in general. He's talking about the specific sin of Adam when he ate the fruit in the garden. The free gift, salvation, is not like sin. It's not like the transgression. Adam gave us a gift of a sinful nature. Thank you very much, Adam. Christ gives a gift that's far different. That's the simple principle that governs the rest of this chapter. Then he goes on to explain. Four, he talks about Adam's sin. If the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift, here it is again, by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now, verses 15 to 22 can be summed up in Paul's words really to the Corinthians, where he says to them, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. And then he says it. Here it is, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. That's a simple principle. Death comes from Adam. Salvation and life eternal, eternal life comes from Jesus. That is as simple as it comes. You could teach that to the, to the four-year-olds downstairs. Now, when I say that Jesus' quote-unquote work is better than Adam's, I'm really talking about that one act, his obedience on the cross, even though that summarizes his whole life. Adam's one act of disobedience in the garden summarized his whole life as well. Let's break it down. Look at verse 15. The free gift, salvation and the gifting of righteousness. That's what it was talking about. What do we need most to go to heaven? Perfection, righteousness. The gift is that God gives us what we could never earn. We can't buy it. It's a gift. He imputes. He gives us his holiness, his righteousness, not by what we do, but by what he gives. 
Let me tell you, if my assurance of salvation was dependent on my ability to act righteously, I would go crazy. Praise God, it's built on a free gift. He gives us what we need most. Now, this, this pitting of the gift of God against the sin is really summed up in a... We'll come back to this in, in, in a few weeks. In Romans 6, 23, you've memorized it, you know it. For the wages of sin is death. Now, see the, the, the illustration, wages. You earn death. You work for that, that's what you get. The wages of sin is death. But what does the verse go on to say? But the free gift, same term, is, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That simple phrase is really all he's talking about in this last paragraph. He goes on. This free gift, and he compares it, is not like the transgression. Adam's act of disobedience. The difference will now be described in terms of their effects in the rest of this chapter. Paraptoma. Interesting Greek word. Transgression. It means to deviate from a path, to get off of the path, to go astray. The idea here is of going where you should not go. Ever heard this word translated, especially the old King James, trespasses? You're trespassing, you're going where you're not supposed to go. That's this word, this, this word transgression. Adam went where he should not have gone. He did what he should not have done. He earned by his wages of sin death. The free gift is not like that. And he goes on to explain, for if by the, this trespass, this going where he should not have gone, this transgression of the one, the many died. Now, we have to get a couple of terms straight here. There's a couple of terms that bounce back and forth, many and all. And he, he's keeping them parallel. And sometimes many means many. And sometimes many means all. Sometimes all means many. And sometimes they go back and forth. But the context tells us exactly what's going on here. Many here uh, means all. You say, how do you know that? Because in verse 12, he says that the transgression of the one all becomes sinners. He's simply applying parallelism with many later in the verse, and also the term all, which will be paralleled in verse 18 as well. We'll talk about that in verse 18. The point is that all die because of our sin that we inherited from Adam. Verses 12 and 14 taught us that in our last two studies. We die because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. Last part of the verse. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. What's that saying? Adam's sin was so serious, it infected the whole human race. Jesus' death and resurrection was so efficacious, it provided the gift of salvation to anyone who would believe. That's the point. The difference is all are stained by Adam's sin. Only those who believe receive the free gift of Salvation in Christ. That's why he goes to great effect. The one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That many there is the all who believe in him. There is salvation by no other name but Jesus. I am the way. We just sung it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. Now just look at this. this is, we, we can't leave this verse without noting it again. Salvation is a gift 
It's a gift. How do you get that gift? I like getting gifts. I remember so, so vividly going to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium with my dad. About an hour and a half drive from Chattanooga where I grew up. And we would go down um, in the summer. Uh, my hero was Hank Aaron. What a gracious man. He's still to, my, to this day in his character, one of my all-time sports heroes. We would go out. He was shagging flies in the outfield. He would come over and talk to us at the fence. Hank Aaron is, is beyond question in my mind the most gracious celebrity I've ever, I was going to say known, but I can't really say I knew him. Known of, how's that? Great memories. I think that my favorite memory of a gift was getting out the schedule and seeing what day they would give out free hats or free baseballs or free, um, uh, free hot dogs or free whatever, you know, and try to get you to come to the stadium. Getting a free gift and realizing all I, all I have to do is show up and they give me the stuff. It seemed a little too good to be true. We've said over and over, if you don't get to the point where you get your understanding wrapped around salvation, where you say, this is too good to be true, you haven't really understood grace. It is a free gift. Now, this paragraph is setting up verse one of chapter six. Let me just sneak over there. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? You don't make that conclusion and have to correct that idea without understanding how overwhelming a free gift of grace is. That you don't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to get it. It is a free gift. But as many as believed him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, what's the word? What's the word? He gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Adam's sin brought death to the world and to every man, but Christ's gift through grace did more than Adam's. His contribution provided forgiveness and righteousness to believers. You've already received Adam's gift. That's your sinful nature. Will you receive Christ's gift? That's what this this passage begs us to answer. You've already received Adam's gift. You couldn't help it. Will you actively receive Christ's gift? The second way Jesus' work is better than Adam's is in verse 16. Jesus provides a better gift. He goes on to talk about this gift. Justification, that is the gift. Being right with God. This is repetitive, but he goes on to explain it. The gift is not like, here he is again, not like, not like. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Salvation is not like sin. That's the point. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Let me make it real easy. Again, the link is between Adam and Jesus. It's made by contrast. The gift is not like. The gift is not like. Sin creates judgment, leads to condemnation. The gift is free and leads to justification. That's all he's saying. Two things jump off the page of this verse. God's serious, 
response to sin held in parallel to God's gracious offer to sinners. He twice uses the term gift in this verse, highlights the fact that salvation is free. You can't earn it. It's the free gift of God from God for God. And again, the difference, as we'll see in chapter 6, is between wages and gifting. Thirdly, a third work of Jesus that's better than Adam's is in verse 17. Jesus provides a better principle. A better principle. That's P-A-L, which means the leader. Someone that we, we, we live and Someone who reigns over us, who rules over us. For if by the transgression, by the sin of the one, Adam's sin, death reigned, ruled through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. For by that transgression of the one Adam, that's Adam's sin, transgression, it comes to Adam, that death reigns, it comes back to him. Death is reigning through us because of Adam. We also activated that sin by every time we disobey. Death reigned through the one. We meet this reign again, by the way, in verse 20. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Don't you love that term? Not just grace, but abundance of grace. And the gift of righteousness. There it is again. See how repetitive this is? Paul just can't stop talking about it. We get what we need. The gift is what we can't earn, and God gives it to us. Righteousness. Now look at this. It reigns in life through the one Jesus Christ. There's, there's two things going on here. Grace reigns in our life in that we'll go to heaven because of Christ's righteousness and the declaration of imputation he's given us. But righteousness also should reign in our own decisions in life and obedience in this world. This is bowing the knee to Jesus' lordship. This is obeying. This is acting out the righteousness that he's already given us by position. This is practical Christian living, practical obedience, practical righteousness. Another way of looking at that practically is that there is forgiveness that comes from grace, meaning we don't stop sinning in this life. We need that grace as well as righteousness, positional and practical. We need what the gift is, living daily. Don't you need grace daily? Now, haven't you needed grace this morning? It reigns over us. So, this is a hint that we're going to go in chapter 6. We're either slaves to sins or slaves to righteousness. Either our principle, our ruler, is death and unrighteousness or righteousness and life in Christ. Look at that last phrase in verse 17. Through the one Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christocentric. It's based on the living one, the one who's risen from the dead, Jesus. It will reign in life through Jesus. Going back to Easter last week, Paul wouldn't say this if Jesus was still dead. He tells us to submit to and let Jesus currently, present tense, reign over our lives. You don't do that with a dead man. Jesus provides a better principle, life, not death. Life eternal and life now where he gives us grace to live. Remember what he said in the first chapter, first part of this chapter, grace by which we stand. 
Number four, Jesus provides a better nature. You say, well, this is getting repetitive, Paul. You're right. He's so excited he can't stop talking about it. What's the better nature? Righteousness. He just spoke of that and he goes on to explain it. These two verses. So then, as through the one transgression, Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's the sinful nature that makes us damnable before God to hell. Even so, through one act of righteousness, that's the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. Here's the all again. Does that, is this teaching universalism? No, no. He's just being parallel and saying, contrasted to Adam, all may be saved through one propitiation, and that's Jesus Christ. You say, who's the all? Those who would believe. Very simple. For as through the one man's disobedience, there's Adam in the garden, the many were made sinners, there's our ontology, there's our nature, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Christ's obedience, remember in the garden he chose to obey God and drink the cup of wrath, the many will be made righteous, those who believe will be made righteous. Transgression, that's condemnation to all men, one act of righteousness, justification to all men. One man, that's Adam's disobedience, made many sinners. One man, that's Christ's obedience, made many righteous. That's believers. So here's the question. Do we become sinners because we sin? Do we become sinners because we sin, or are we sinning because we're already sinners? Paul answers that for us right now. It's our nature. Here's another question. From where does our righteousness come? Or on what basis does God evaluate a believer's righteousness? We find it right here. It's given to us. This this should shock us. This is so overwhelming, as we'll see in our next study. Paul has to correct this thinking. Well, if that's the case, I can do anything I want. Because God already looks at me as righteous. My question is not the correction in chapter 6. My my question is, do we really believe the free gift and overwhelming gift of God in grace in chapter 5? He has imputed to us what we need most, what we can never earn, the gift of righteousness. Which leads us to a fifth way Jesus' work is better than Adam's. Jesus provides a better eternity. This is the best news possible. Eternal life, code words for heaven. He provides a better eternity. Now, verse 20 has confused a lot of people. It's caused some people to be antinomian, anti-law, to be, be against the law. Look at what Paul's saying here. The law came in, Moses' law. We've already studied that in chapters 2, 3, 4. The law came in so that the trespassing, the transgression, would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What in the world is that saying? Is Paul saying, well, the law came. Moses gave us the law so that sin would get better and we would be better sinners. No, not at all. It's not saying that the law caused sin, but as we've already studied, it's saying the law revealed our sin specifically. But the good news here is that grace trumps sin. You cannot out-sin God's grace. 
Now, our consciences make us try all the time. We, we sin and we think, that God wouldn't forgive me for that. God, God would certainly hold me accountable for this. But we're, we're constantly telling ourselves the opposite of what this passage tells us. Grace reigns, as we'll see. It, it reigns over us. Chapter 6 will inform us. Grace is the principle by which we live. You can never sin more powerfully and more definitively than the cross can pay for. That's, that's incredible news. I mean, can we have an honest moment with each other? Have you ever had that moment where you, your conscience was burdened and you just really felt like, yeah, this is, this is over the line or if it's not over the line, it's too much. I've done this, thought this, acted this way. Too many times I have, I have crossed the line, the point of no return. God wouldn't forgive me for this intensity of sin or this much sin. No, where sin increased, grace all the more. He's not saying, as chapter 6 will tell us, well, if grace makes, is glorified by how much it covers, then sin all the more to glorify grace. What he's saying is you cannot sin to the degree where God will say, that's it, won't forgive you for that. Remember the thief on the cross? Let me shock our sensibilities. Think of the worst person that you could imagine in history. Hussein, Hitler, Osama bin Laden. Now, I don't know what happened with those men's final thoughts. All indications are that they, they met God as judge and not savior. But a man like that, is he beyond your idea of somebody who could be forgiven? Jeffrey Dahmer, just name the person in your mind. The second you find yourself saying, God would never forgive someone like that, they've gone too much. Or even this, I would never want God to save someone like that. You have just forfeited God's assessment of your heart and mind, which is that we are like that. So I've never done those things. That's the point Jesus was making. If you've looked on a woman to commit adultery in your heart, you've, in God's eyes, it's the same as you've done it. If you've hated someone, you've committed murder. Jesus is saying, there is no one worse than you and me before God. Get off of the scale of economy. One sin condemns us all, not 10,000. And one act of Christ can save, do you believe this? Anyone who will believe. Don't fall into the trap of saying, there are people who, just beyond God's grace, not me. This passage teaches us just the opposite. Can't outstand God's grace. Verse 21, so that, here's our reigning again, this ruling. As sin reigned in death, how do you know sin is reigning? Everybody dies. Everybody dies. Hebrews uh, 2 tells us that by nature we're subject to the fear of death all our life. Even so, even though that's the truth, grace would reign through righteousness, that doctrine of imputation, that we were given the gift, not having to earn it ourselves, to eternal life through Jesus, our master, our 
Lord. Paul now concludes this section on contrasting Jesus and Adam by discussing the reigning principles of life. The verse has this life and the next in focus. Grace does not ignore sin. He's going to correct that in the next passage. Grace doesn't ignore sin. Grace pays for sin. It forgives sin. And the presence of grace in our lives not only provides forgiveness, but it provides the power to live righteously. If grace, this is his conclusion, think about this. If grace is reigning in our hearts, which is more powerful than sin, which gives us death, do you not think God has provided the power through his gracious provision, his gift of righteousness, to live in a way that pleases him? To say no to sin in the moment of temptation and yes to righteousness. If you don't believe that, you've just doomed yourself to a life of failure. If you do believe that, you've just opened up the floodgates of grace to find victory in the moment of temptation. Will we sin? Yes. Do we have to? No. Only a Christian can say that. Listen to what John Stott says describing the reign of grace. He says, Nothing can sum up better the blessings of being in Christ than the expression, the reign of grace. For grace forgives sins through the cross and bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. Grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them into the image of Christ. Grace preserves even the recalcitrant, determining to complete that which it has begun. And one day, one day, grace will destroy death and consummate the kingdom. So, when we are convinced that grace reigns, we remember that God's throne is a throne of grace. And we'll come to it boldly to receive mercy and find grace for every need. You see where theology proper is, is, is woven in this? Theology proper is our view of God. If we view God as that 100-foot coiled cobra in a tiny room with us in one corner and him in the other, we won't be running to him. That's the right picture for us looking at our lives in death and sin. It's ready to strike at any moment. But if we see God, if God is really the God of grace, if he really has given in the lordship of Christ eternal life, as 20, verse 21 says, then we're going to run to him knowing we have his favor. Is not the greatest thought in the world when you know who God is that he looks at you favorably because of his son, but still favorably? He's not, this is, this is almost too much. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother. And John, he says, don't call me Lord, call me friend. What? Now, we're always calling him Lord, but what he was saying is, we have a favorable relationship with one another. And if he looks on us with gracious righteousness, how should we respond to and look to him? 
Look at the last phrase. Jesus Christ, our, and now he defines the relationship, our master, our kurios, our Lord, calls the shots, tells us what to do. Let me just break it down. If, if, you, if you come to this church and come to this Bible and go to these care groups and our Sunday school classes and you don't want to be told how to live or told what to do, probably not the place. It's not because we have any authority. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ does. Does he call the shots in your life? Is he your master? Or do you just want him to be your savior? Fire insurance. Paul defines the relationship with the plural noun, the the plural pronoun, our, our Lord. That's the definition. So the question of this passage is what's reigning in your life? Sin or righteousness? Grace or death? The fear of God's judgment or the joy of God's forgiveness. This passage drips with assurance for those who will believe the data God's given us here. It also drips with an invitation to receive. It's just, it almost, it almost makes me laugh being giddy. To receive the free gift of going to heaven forever. By believing in Jesus and his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. I was able to talk to a guy on a plane a few weeks ago. He said, we had some chit-chatting and he says, uh, asking him what he did and he told me. He says, what do you do? And I was just having some fun. I said, I have the greatest job in the world. He says, what is that? I said, I get to tell people for a living, I get to tell people how they can be forgiven of all their sins and go to heaven forever. It's an amazing job. And he looked at me like I was from Jupiter. I asked him if he was interested and he said no. Jesus' saving act is greater than Adam's damning act. This morning I was playing around getting ready for this, um, this passage praying and I tweeted out something that I want to correct. I think the tweet that I put out this morning was, um, do you want a billion, $100 billion in the bank or $100 billion in debt? Because of this phrase in here, much more than, more than that, much more than, let me just change it. I think this, this passage says, would you like $100 billion in debt or would you like a trillion, billion, million dollars in righteousness? You actually get more than you're forgiven for. Perfection and righteousness imputed and standing before God. That's, do you understand why the Bible says the gospel is good? What? News. It doesn't make us better. It gives us Perfection. In God's eyes, before God's throne, under his righteous standard. 
I just want to beg you, if, you're, if you know the gospel, rejoice on that. Get assurance from that. Rest in the reign of grace in your life, not the reign of death. And if you don't, boy, have you come on a right day when it is pouring down outside. You don't want to run out in the, in, in the car. You want to come to the prayer room and get salvation. It's a free gift. We're giving away salvation at this church. You say, that sounds kind of cheesy and corny. Actually, it's way bigger than that. God is giving it out to anyone who will believe. It's not that incredible. What fool would say no to that? You want to stay under the reign of death and sin and meet God as judge, or you want to receive him by grace, get his favor, and see him as Lord and Savior? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the grace, first of all, of getting through this passage. It's just one point and one argument that we need to weave together. And I'm grateful that we were able to study it in one shot. Thank you for these precious people who give attention in the midst of a thunderstorm. We hear the rain pounding on our roof. But that's nothing like the flow of your grace to the hearts of those who believe. And your offer of grace to those who might believe. Bring sinners to repentance today, to bow the knee to your lordship, to understand your gift of grace, and to receive your death, Lord Jesus, for their sin and your righteousness as they're standing before the Father. While your heads are still bowed, I'm going to dismiss in a minute in our prayer room will be open to the right. Luke and Amy are over there. And if, if you want to talk and pray about anything, if we can bear a burden with you, talk to you about how you can be saved, don't leave without getting that right before the Lord. Father, dismiss us now with great thoughts of a great Savior living in the reign of your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.